Blog Talk Radio. Hey there, Dr. Ross Green here. Time for another edition of Parenting Your Challenging Child. I'm joined by my co-host, Susie Porton, who is celebrating, I don't know why, the <laughs> Buffalo Bills' victory over the New England Patriots yesterday, 16 to nothing. I guess if people want to celebrate beating a team that has a rookie quarterback, they can, but um, Tom Brady will be back next time, and we'll see if things change. But we don't want to take away the bluster of the folks in upstate New York. It was a deserved victory. How are you today, Mrs. Parton? I'm good, thanks, and that's very generous of you. Well, Patriots fans are very generous, plus we realize that it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's just entertainment. Right. Of course, that's what we say when we lose. It's the, all the world when we win, but you get the idea. Right. Yes. Um, anything you want to start with today? Well, let's start with the phone number that people should call in, 347-994-2981. Please press 1. Uh, anything you wanted to start with today? We've got lots of email, as always. No callers yet. Um Anything on your mind, or should we jump straight into email? Well, there is a question I wanted to ask you. Um, let's say the child is exhibiting challenging behavior at home, and I know the first two steps of collaborative and proactive solutions, but what if the child is not ready to participate in the invitation step? What do you do, Dr. Green? Well, first of all, a great question. First of all, you want to make sure you're doing this proactively, not emergently. Mm -hmm. And secondly, if a kid is, if we get to the invitation, and as is the custom, we are giving the kid the first crack at the solution. If they are having difficulty doing that, they may throw in the towel quickly, in which case we can come back to it another time. But it's also possible that the adult can kick in with some solutions. As we always say, if the kid doesn't have any ideas, we hope the adult or other party does. Mm -hmm. um, um, I guess that's what comes to mind at the moment. Is there something you were thinking? You, of course, know lots about CPS. What am I forgetting? Well, just that... Um, it takes a while sometimes for the child to participate in conversations and for the adult not to get discouraged and throw in the towel um, that you want to uh, grant the child permission. Um, it's okay. He doesn't have to talk to you right then and there. Um, there's always another time. And that you're not mad at the child. He's not in trouble. It's uh, it's a process. You're trying to solve a problem together, collaboratively and proactively. There you go. 
I appreciate these questions you ask at the beginning of every program. We do not have a caller, so why don't we jump into email, shall we? Sure. And we have lots of good ones here. I'm trying to take my pick here. Um, and now, of course, it's taking its time loading. Here we go. We have an explosive child. He has been this way since day two of his life. I'm wondering if you have any material focusing on how to handle a 15-year-old who seems to be exhibiting symptomatology of oppositional defiant disorder. He is too big for me to sling him over my shoulders anymore for cool down time in his room. He also has pandas, and his oppositional behaviors get much worse when he is sick. Um, well, I got a walking tour for you. See, here's what ends up happening. If we spend, and I'm not being critical here of this mom, um, slinging a kid over his, your shoulder to get him to cool down uh, is not going to be a long-term strategy, even if you can do it at the age of three, even if you can do it at the age of 10, because it's not solving the problems that are causing the behaviors that are causing caregivers to sling the kid over their shoulder so he can calm down. Slinging and calming down, while they might be okay strategies, they aren't long-term strategies because as we're learning, at the age of 15 you can't do that anymore. But most importantly, even if that weren't true, even if you could still sling 15-year-olds over your shoulder so they could go to the room and calm down, um, you're not solving the problems that are causing the behaviors that are causing the slinging in the first place. Once those problems are solved, there's no more of that behavior and there's no more need for slinging. And so, what would I do for a kid who meets diagnostic criteria or is exhibiting symptoms of oppositional defiant disorder? Whether they are 15 or 2, I would do what's included in the walking tour in the parents section of the Lives in the Balance website. It's going to give you everything you need to start doing things differently, especially if either you can't sling anymore or if you're finding that slinging wasn't that great of an idea in the first place. Susie, did you ever sling and how long were you able to do that for? Uh, not very long, as you just said. Um, but but what we did do as um, our son got older um, was work out in advance things that he could do when he started to feel himself getting frustrated, um, things such as uh, walking away. Things don't have to be discussed in that moment, um, you can take a break, um, go into a different room, um, uh, go to a quiet place or to a friend's house or a family member's house. Um, he used to go to his grandparents' house uh, frequently if uh, things got bumpy. Um, but by solving problems proactively and collaboratively, slowly, reduced the amount of meltdowns and eventually eliminated um, this type of challenging behavior. 
And there you have it. Um, so many things that we do as parents to put out brush fires or actually in the case of many of the things we do as parents to light brush fires or to turn them into forest fires, what's interesting is the fire is not the issue. Solving the problems that are causing the fire, that's the issue. Once those problems are solved, there's no fire. Right. We ready for another one? Yes. I am extremely interested in your teachings, but I'm still a bit confused about how I could take this approach with my five-year-old. The gathering information step and brainstorming step sound like they would be geared more toward a kid who's older than five. How do I effectively go through the steps with a child that is so young so I can be sure to the, that I'm to the, doing things to the best of my ability and that here I and are understanding each other as much as we can? Um, here we go. We do this with two-year-olds. And so a five-year-old who has intact language processing and communication skills should be just fine. What I find is that five-year-olds, two-year-olds, three-year-olds are expressing their concerns oftentimes in a less sophisticated way than a 14-year-old but I've also worked with 14-year-olds who didn't express their concerns in a very sophisticated way at all. And I've worked with four- and five-year-olds who expressed their concerns, three-year-olds who expressed their concerns in ways that were very sophisticated. So what's interesting is, as we always say, chronological age is not the issue here. Uh, can this kid uh, express concerns in language and can this kid understand our concerns? Um, that's going to be the big issue in the first two steps, the empathy step and the define adult concerns step. In the invitation, um, you know, kids are very variable in the invitation step as well when we are brainstorming solutions. Um, Sometimes younger kids need a little bit of guidance in terms of thinking of how a problem has been solved previously, thinking of other problems that are related for which the solution may apply to this problem. But once again, I find that that is true of many 14- and 15-year-olds and that there are many 4- and 5-year-olds who have wonderful solutions and solutions that take our concerns into account and that are mutually satisfactory. As I'm always saying, don't sell those preschoolers short. Um, the language might be a little bit different, might be a little less sophisticated, but as you've already heard, even that isn't always true. Susie, any thoughts on that? Yep. Um, just to uh, back you up about simplifying the language, and you want to try to teach them a vocabulary to express their frustration or anger um, or their misunderstanding that they're feeling, um, to make sure that you have the right lenses on, that this is a learning disability, a developmental delay, that similar to a math or a reading problem. So you don't want to punish the child for... Um, having these lagging skills, and that it's a family problem, 
Um, like we always say, you don't want to pathologize the child. You want to find out what's getting in the child's way. And lastly, I just love your book, The Adventures of Stretch More, which um, is something that the parent can read either by themselves or with the child. And that helps to explain things in a very um, understandable way. And there you go. Here's another. I have two kids, age 14 and 8. Both are, I hate labels, so we'll go with neuroatypical. That's in the email, that's not me. Mm -hmm. The 8-year-old is our struggle currently. Last year it was his sister. I'm trying to learn and explain to my partner and their dad a thousand miles away and the support staff teams at both kids' schools plus our crisis therapist who has been coming to our home for a year now. We've only tried drilling a couple of times with the eight-year-old. However, though his answers made sense to us and we worked out solutions, those exact issues are constant. The big issue is the kid lies more than not. Lying is the biggest infraction in my house and was never an issue with my daughter. So when trying to get to the bottom of why, he instinctively lies. So then, our plan B is ineffective. So we have become more frustrated and ponder how to resolve this so we don't continue down the incorrect path. Um, Again, may be addressed, but the stalling at bedtime, um, my partner can not see that this falls under lagging skills, and I've um, not been up to doing the ALSIP. Uh, I believe difficulty getting ready for bed does get explained by lagging skills um, because he has extremely defiant behaviors, which is how I discovered CPS and became an instant convert. As with the rest of his defiant behaviors, it's a lagging skill with the unsolved problem. Who is correct? This is longer, so we're going to have a few things to talk about here. Um, Maybe this answer is in The Explosive Child, and I've not read far enough. Um, Any help pointing me in the right direction would be very appreciated. It's been a war zone for 14 years, and I'm waving the white flag. All right. So, of course, um, Mom, we don't want you waving the white flag just yet. You've only uh, drilled twice. Um, and uh, you don't want to drill. You don't want to uh, wave the white flag after only two Plan Bs. But let me go back to earlier in your email. First of all, it sounds like you got a lot of people involved, um, and they're going to have different points of view about what's going on with a behaviorally challenging kid. And it's not always so easy to get everybody on the same page. I think that uh, it is easier to get people on the same page. If, believe it or not, you move away from the lagging skill versus lagging motivation discussion and move instead toward unsolved problems, also known as unmet expectations, that everyone can agree on. There's no mistake. The unmet expectations are there. The unsolved problems are there. So you're beginning with consensus. You can get a consensus on the fact that there are expectations the kid is having difficulty reliably meeting. Is it crucial to, uh, distinct, to, to explain those unsolved problems 
with lagging skills versus lagging motivation? Well, I think it's pretty crucial, but I actually wouldn't spend that much time on that because you may not be successful with that early on. I think you'll be more successful by helping people come to consensus on what the unsolved problems are, especially if they're not all in the same place. They will be in the same place if they all agree these are expectations this eight-year-old is having difficulty meeting. Those are known as unsolved problems. Now, here's where life gets interesting. How are we going to go about solving those problems? How is a um, carrot or a stick going to help us understand what's getting in the way of a kid getting into bed on time at night? We need that information. How is... uh, a carrot or a stick, going to communicate to the kid what our concerns are about the stalling that's taking place, if you want to call it that, uh, before bedtime. And how is our carrots and sticks going to help us come up with a solution um, that addresses the concerns of both parties? So I think that if you can get people to achieve a consensus on unsolved problems and help them prioritize, that might be all the consensus you can achieve early on. And, you know, if it's an unsolved problem, it needs to be solved. And carrots and sticks don't solve problems. Believe it or not, while the research tells us that lagging skills are where the action is at, Sometimes people don't become convinced of the lagging skill part until um, they actually start seeing success in the problem solving. Um, Now, later in your email, you refer to the fact that it's been hard for you to get to the ALSIP. Absolutely the most persuasive way to help people recognize that this is about lagging skills and unsolved problems is by having people sit down and use the ALSIP Um, very hard to come out of an ALSIP meeting not believing that the kid has lagging skills. Hard not to, because you're going to check a bunch off, and that's how people get persuaded that this is indeed about lagging skills. Now, as it relates to the drilling, you're saying that the exact issues are still constant even though the kid's answers made sense to you. That we would need some more detail on because because I don't know if we're going to be able to help you. Maybe it was an issue with drilling, that we didn't drill far enough. Maybe the solution wasn't realistic and mutually satisfactory. Hard to tell why those initial attempts at Plan B didn't work so well, but you should feel free to uh, email us again and give us more detail on that. Last thing for me here is the lying. Lying is a behavior. Just like hitting, spitting, kicking, throwing, destroying. And in plan B, we're not focused on the behavior. We're focused on um, what expectations the kid is lying about. Now, you did indicate that you felt that the information you were getting in the empathy step of plan B was lying. And to tell you the truth, I don't run into that very often if ever. So that makes me wonder about a few things. Number one, I hope we're not trying to talk with the eight-year-old about behavior. That's something kids lie about. 
I hope the eight-year-old knows that um, he's not in trouble. You're not mad. You're not going to tell him what to do. Um, what I find is that lying is most often the byproduct of a history of plan A and is the kid's attempt to get out of trouble. But when we are talking with a kid about an unsolved problem, and when we are interested in gathering information not about why he did something, because you had why in capital letters, when you're trying to get to the bottom of why, you're not trying to get to the bottom of why. You're trying to just get his concern, perspective, point of view on a very specific unsolved problem, not behavior. So it could be that you could use some refreshing on some of these points beyond what you've just heard from me and what you're about to hear from Susie. You might want to go back, if you haven't already, and take the walking tour for parents on the Lives in the Balance website. It's in the parents section, just so that some of these points are better clarified for you. I know that was a lot of information. Susie, it's your turn. All right. Um, I can remember so well my husband used to accuse my son of lying. And my son happens to be a fast talker and is very quick on his feet. Um, but one thing I learned was to trust my child and that you're not enemies, that you're trying to, you know, that that you're not enemies. Um, my son was was pretty good at saying one thing and then changing it, and I thought I was going crazy uh, in the process. But um, when I when I just totally embraced that children do well if they can, that gave me the hope and strength to trust my child um, and to use the collaborative and proactive solutions process that we were working together, that we weren't working together um, towards a solution that was mutually satisfying and addressed both parties' concerns. Um, the other thing that's so important, besides using the ALSEP, I found was, and that put your problems in order so that you're not so overwhelmed, was the problem-solving plan. And um, who was working with the child, um, also that helped, well, through the ALSEP, that challenging behavior shows up and hibernating problems show up, um, so that we were able to sent, set benchmarks um, and um, a timetable that problems would be solved and slowly um, knock off our list of unsolved problems. And there you go. I hope that helps. Feel free to, Mom, feel free to email us again if you need more clarification or want to give us more clarification. Still no callers, so let me give that number again, 347-994-2981. Could I just interrupt you for a second, Dr. Green? Please, please. All right. I noticed on the What's New in the Lives in the Balance website that there's a um, 
checklist for the ALSEP and Plan B. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, our Director of Research, Jenny Winkler, Mm -hmm. has been working hard at helping us be more explicit about all of the things people really need to think about when they are using the ALSIP and when they are doing Plan B. And what she did is she's come up with some checklists for both that you're right are in the What's New section of the website, now also in the Paperwork section, um, for uh, helping people check off uh, either how they're doing on the ALSIP or on Plan B, or if they're coaching somebody to check off how the person they're coaching is doing. So it's a nice way of really keeping track of what you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to do. And um, she's made it much more explicit, uh, as we always do with the CPS model. We're always looking for ways to help people do it better. And those are there. I also want to let people know that um, also in the What's New section, two of our advisory committee members, Heather uh, Mosley and Meredith Furtado, are throwing any book signing and um, talk by me in Greenwich, Connecticut on Wednesday of this week. I'm told that somewhere up to about 150 people will be in attendance, all interested in hearing more about Raising Human Beings, the new book, and about what Lives in the Balance is doing to try to advocate on behalf of all kids, behaviorally challenging ones in particular, and... um, We want to thank Heather and Meredith for doing that as well. That's terrific. We are getting some traction here. Yes. Here's another one. Mm -hmm. Still no calls. We might not get any calls today. Uh, I just started using the CPS model. I have a son age 7 and a daughter age 9. Many of our explosive situations happen in the car on the way to school. Both kids participate in the escalation of the situation. I'm not sure how to word the unsolved problem and who should I should address first. To be more specific, yesterday morning we were listening to music on the way to school. Both children were singing along with the music. My daughter says to her brother, be quiet, you don't know how to sing. He in turn, this is uh, predictable, gets louder singing. She screams and cries more, stop, you are just trying to annoy me. He gets louder, she continues to scream. He hits her. She refuses to get out of the car when we arrive because both kids are involved in the issue. I feel like they both need to be involved in the solution. For my daughter, I'd probably start with, I've noticed you've had some difficulty allowing your brother to sing in the car or something. For my son, I'm not sure how to word it. He shouldn't hit her, uh, but she instigated the situation by yelling at him. My expectation is that we are calm and kind to each other in the car ride. I need a little assistance putting it all together. Ask and you shall receive. Mm-hmm. Susie, do you want to tackle that one first? Do you want me to? Oh, that's okay. Go ahead. Okay. You can do plan B between two kids. Um, you don't necessarily have to start with a different unsolved problem. It depends on, for each, depends on how specific you want to be about the situation. But I might go with difficulty getting along with your brother slash sister if there's music playing in the car. That's a little bit more specific than difficulty getting along with your brother slash sister in the car. Judgment call on how specific you want to be. 
If you want to be more specific, and of course we call that splitting the unsolved problem in, in the CPS model when it comes to wording unsolved problems, splitting is actually a good thing. The word splitting has gotten a bad name in parent management circles, but in this model when it comes to wording unsolved problems, splitting is actually a good thing. So difficulty getting along with your sibling in the car is about as uh, is the least specific we could be. I could roll with that if they know what you're talking about. But if you don't think they're going to know what you're talking about, then you'd want to go with difficulty getting along with your sibling when there's music playing in the car. Difficulty, and, and anything else that they're having difficulty getting along over in the car would be separate unsolved problems. But I think it's okay that the wording be the same for both. I don't think you want a hitting unsolved problem because that's behavior. We're always paddling upstream here to try to identify the uh, unmet expectation that's causing the behavior, and I think you've got it already, so I don't think you need a hitting unsolved problem for your son. And now logistics. If you don't think that they'll be able to talk about it together uh, on the first go, then talk to each of them about it separately, get their concerns on the table, and then bring them together for the invitation. If you don't think you can bring them together for the invitation, then after you've done the information gathering from both of them, then get together with each of them separately to brainstorm potential solutions and then put them together to sort through the different solutions. The reason sometimes you've got to start without them being together is because they may not be very good at listening to each other yet. They may feel that they need to jump on something the other one is saying that they disagree with or that is not in line with their own perceptions. So um, separately is often what I recommend in the beginning for those first two steps of plan B and sometimes even for the brainstorming phase until it's time to bring them together. If you're confident that they can listen to each other, hear each other, and not interrupt each other, then you can start with them together. That's not the norm, just because most of the time siblings aren't very good at that yet. Susie, anything to add? Um, I think that's outstanding advice. There's not much I could add. Um, my challenging child was a little older before we started working with Dr. Green um, and our family uh, needed practice talking to each other. They're, the kids were mean teasing and sarcasm and speaking to each other. So for uh, quite a long time, we had to speak to each child separately, um, and that worked out great. Outstanding. Here is another. It's an interesting one. Um, hello, my daughter is in second grade and her school is implementing a PBIS program, that's positive behavior interventions and supports, that I find to be problematic on many levels. It's called Peacekeepers and seems to come out of the restorative justice community. Seems very rooted in criminal justice ideas. I'm wondering if you can suggest an alternate PBIS program that is more in line with the approach you take. When I speak to the, the school about my concerns, I would love to have some alternatives to bring up. Thank you. You're welcome. 
I do not know that Peacekeepers is a PBIS program. The school may be implementing both programs, but I was not aware that Peacekeepers was part of a PBIS program. I think that um, what's going on is that school is implementing both PBIS and Peacekeepers. That may be what you meant. If that's what you meant, then I didn't need to say all that. Um, uh, there are some things about uh, restorative justice that I like very much, especially their problem-solving circles. I'd be interested in knowing what parts you are taking exception to. Yes, restorative justice has uh, uh, its lineage in um, the criminal justice system. And the big question is, how applicable is that to schools? I think restorative circles are very applicable. I am more troubled often by the um, perpetrator-victim uh, uh, mentality that sometimes goes along with that way of thinking. Um, I don't think that that applies to most things that are going on in school, believe it or not, even bullying um, and there are people who would disagree with that, but I think it even takes two to tango with bullying frequently. Um, so I guess the big question is whether um, what parts you object to are part of peacekeepers or part of PBIS. Now, PBIS is a framework. It's a structure. It's actually not a program. That said, many PBIS programs still place a heavy emphasis on carrots and sticks, which is why I often say that PBIS alone is not transformative enough for many school systems to change what they need to be changing for their most challenging students. It's a structure. What I have found that many schools have done is that they've just taken what they were doing before PBIS in terms of discipline, and they've laid PBIS over it so that it's um, not dramatically different from what they were doing before. They've just got it organized into three tiers so they know who's getting what, but it's the same discipline program, and behaviorally challenging kids are still being viewed through the same lenses. Uh, that's not transformative enough. So the big question is whether the parts that you're objecting to are the PBIS part, the peacekeepers part, um, or neither because it's just a remnant of the old discipline program. And I do not know the answer to that. What I will say is that collaborative and proactive solutions has been implemented by many school systems as part of their implementation of PBIS. Um, so uh, I'm good with that. That's going to be non-punitive, non-adversarial, proactive, collaborative, relationship-enhancing, skill-building. So I think what you're offering um, is not another remnant of PBIS or not another remnant of a peacekeeper system, but what you're offering them is collaborative and proactive solutions. And what you might want to point them toward is that wonderful tour, walking tour for educators that they can find on the Lives in the Balance website in the educators section. Susie, is there anything you would like to add to that? Uh, no, there really isn't. 
Then let's turn to one. I think we have time for one more here. Let's go. This is a very recent one. I feel so stupid for asking this question, but I really don't understand how to do plan B. My son has difficulty doing math fractions. I understand it is the whole math fraction and converting the fraction that he doesn't understand. So if I know this, how come it's so hard to me for me to make it work? We had another major make breakdown doing math homework that involves drawing graphs using fractions. I actually had to leave the room just to break down in tears because I get the figuring out what the problem is. I just don't understand how to make them understand the fractions. How do you solve that problem? Desperately wanting help but feeling stupid for asking. Well, rule number one is never feel stupid for asking, but um, Susie, you want me to tackle that one or you want to go for it? Sure, go ahead. Okay. Um, I don't know that you, Mom, have to be the one who understands how to help your son with the math. I think you have to come up with a solution, and I'm, this, is, this is a preordained solution, but the bottom line is it sounds like your son needs help with the math. It doesn't have to be you providing it. Somebody else could be providing it, and that would be a perfectly fine solution. So... Believe it or not, it sounds like you're actually doing a pretty good job, but it also sounds like you are taking on the responsibility of coming up with the solution um, or being a major part of the solution. And um, you don't have to be a major part of the solution. You're the problem-solving facilitator. The solution may not be yours to implement or yours to take responsibility for. One thing I know for sure, if I was on the hook for helping my kids with their math, we would have been out of business in the problem-solving department a good, I don't know, 10 years ago. Um, and so you do not have to be the one helping with the fractions, but part of the solution might be finding someone to help with the fractions, and that would be a perfectly fine solution. Susie, thoughts? Um, just... Like you said, uh, to have a neutral person to be helping your um, child with their math homework, um, I am very challenged in the math area. So we uh, employed a tutor from a very early age, um, and and that worked beautifully with our um, challenging child. It removed me completely from the... Uh, how to solve whatever math problem came up and um and I'll let the two of them uh work on whatever it was they needed to there you go and we have time for one more so let's let's move on quickly wow. here okay my, my son's school is receptive to trying the uh, CPS approach, which is a relief. He's having so much difficulty participating in the majority of his second grade classes, and when pushed to participate, can explode with a variety of behaviors that may get him expelled. He has dyslexia, ADHD, and anxiety. He struggles with reading and writing assignments. He is also embarrassed because he knows he isn't keeping up with his classmates. At this point, I think he's been counseled on and disciplined for his misbehavior so many times that he feels hopeless. I do not like the way this is sounding. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. This is heading down the wrong path, but we won't know what's really going on or how to help him until we walk through your process. In the meantime, I don't want him to get expelled since I believe it will make things worse for him. I can't imagine how it would make things better. That's me, not her. To give us the time to educate everyone on your process and get them to fill out the ALSIP, I've asked that they not pressure him into participating and allow him to sit quietly in the adjacent room and do other work if he feels up to it, or nothing at all if he is particularly resistant. He, he would not be disruptive, an expectation that he could not be disruptive, an expectation that was made clear to him. This has worked in the past with other teachers. I'm looking to avoid escalation in the short term, emphasizing with his school that this is just a short-term solution in my mind, using Plan C until we can get a handle on the worst unsolved problems with Plan B. They had a concern that stumped me. They said they believed very firmly that allowing my son to remove himself like that would make the rest of his class think that they should be able to do the same. I'm not a very common concern, by the way. I'm not sure I agree since I assume they had already communicated to the class that their expectation was everyone needed to participate and stay in the immediate classroom. With my son, the same expectation was in place, but I was asking that they not impose their will and insist on participation in Plan A. Is my suggested approach the right one? And if so, what do they say to the other classmates who want the pass my son is getting? Boy, is that a great question. Um, I love that question. Not that I didn't love the other ones, by the way, but uh, that is a great question. Um, The other kids aren't having difficulty meeting that expectation. And if they ask for a free pass, then we would have to explain to them that they're not having trouble meeting that expectation and that he is. And that if there are expectations they are having difficulty meeting, we would find a way to help them too. And believe it or not, it's that simple. There's no classroom in North America, as I always say, where everyone is being treated the same. In every classroom in North America, somebody's getting something that somebody else isn't getting. And that is called good teaching. So, First of all, we shouldn't be scared of other kids asking why somebody's getting something somebody else isn't getting. It's just that we shouldn't respond to that question by bending over backwards to treat everybody exactly the same. What we're bending over backwards to do is create a classroom community where everybody gets what they need and where we're not comparing what everybody's getting, but where we all feel the sense of assurance that if we're having difficulty meeting an expectation, our classroom teacher or somebody else is going to help us figure out what's getting in the way and help us solve that problem. I think you're taking the exact right approach. I think it's a very common concern that if we treat one kid differently, everybody else is going to want the same thing. I almost never find that to be true. Kids are going to ask, but I almost never find that to be the case. And if they do want the same thing, it's our opportunity, that's a teaching moment, to explain to them how um, everybody not getting the exact same thing not only works better for the kid who's having difficulty, but for everybody in the class. Susie, anything to add to that before we have to call it a day? No, nope, just to uh, back you up on good teaching is that everyone gets what they need. And, in fact, um, it was written into my son's um, plan, school plan, that when he started to feel himself getting 
angry and upset, he could remove himself and and go down to the guidance counselor's office and calm himself down, and then he would, um, after that, return to the class. And it worked out beautifully. Um, and I don't remember the other children asking for that particular um that particular solution to be implemented for them. It just uh, helped my son. And just to uh, recommend uh, your books, Lost at School and The Adventures of Stretch Moore, are wonderful resources for her as well as the school. And there you have it. And there you have it on our program today. Susie, thanks as always so much for doing this again. Well, thank you. We will be back next week with another edition of Parenting Your Challenging Child. Take care. Take care.